Um, let me just get in here. A quick word on this hotter-than-expected inflation. Joe Biden's heavy-duty federal spending fiasco is forcing interest rates to rise and keeping higher-than-expected inflation alive. Biden has poured in almost $6 trillion in new spending and it looks like he's planning on at least another $4 trillion in the years ahead. That, according to the new CBO baseline. And the word of the day in this report came out to describe the uh, uh, descriptions was gratuitous. And I think that was right. There were cheap shots. I found some of the language in the report a little bit gratuitous. I think that this uh, special counsel report was gratuitous. This gratuitous language that he used. Gratuitous language about his mental acuity. A very gratuitous hypothetical about Biden's age. And I think the word gratuitous is generous. The work of community work, and in particular violence intervention, is about investing in the community, understanding our capacity, understanding the greatness, and then being motivated with that knowledge to do what we can to reduce harm, but not for the sake only of reducing harm, but in investing in the potential and the greatness. That is the essence of this work. My fellow Americans, words have many meanings. Whatever we have in store cannot be known. The past was once the future. The future is, I should say, unknown. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Unregulated Podcast. This is episode number 169. We are still going strong. I'm your co-host, Tom Pyle. Dan, I'm your stewardess, Mike McKenna. Happy Valentine's Day, Mr. McKenna. Happy St. Valentine's Day, right? Didn't they canonize Happy that guy? Valentine's Day, Mr. McKenna. How are you today? Today is, of course, the 14th of February on a cool and crisp day here in our nation's capital and other places. It's freezing out there. It's freezing. It's freezing. So, the... I, mm, this whole inflation thing is just sticky, sticky. Yeah, it turns out you can't be unburdened by what has been. It just it's tur- not going anywhere. They keep wishing and hoping and praying the the stock market went a tumbling. Uh, no great cuts in the eminent future. It looks like, right? Yeah, that March, that March meeting's not gonna not gonna be pretty. So yeah, it. Yeah, I, I think I think we're living we're living in the economy we're going to live in as long as as long as I don't know the next year or so, right? This is this, as long this, as they keep spending money like it's water. Well, I'm thinking coming out of the tap. This is the election. This is this is the election economy now. It's not going to change, right? Not materially yeah. in the next six months. So, yeah. <clears throat> well, I I am not happy about it. Obviously, I don't like to pay more for everything, uh, and certainly. Doesn't bode well for uh, those of us, uh, those who, um, you know, takes a little bit more out of their paycheck. Um, The credit crunch isn't going to go away. I don't think anytime soon, personal credit's not going to go down. Mortgages are going to stay high. It's, it's not, it's not a fun, fun time to be a consumer in America. Yeah. No, you know the that's the terrible thing about economics and physics, right? That they they both are remorseless and they don't care what you think. Of course, um, the great Milton Friedman said inflation is caused by one thing and one thing only: government spending. So, 
Yeah. Any and all attempts to uh, say otherwise, I, I think he, I think he's, he was onto something there. It's the media's fault, Mike. What do we have in mind? If only they wouldn't focus on Biden's slip-ups. If, oh, if the, the right question to that poll is who? <laughs> this is a. This was actually a a, a a double gaslight, right? The right question is who's taking care of the border. I I kind of wondered about that. I'm like, not sure. I not sure. I'd, <laughs> not sure. I switched off to that topic, right? Yeah, you don't want to talk Senator, about Senator Coons, good loyal soldier to President Biden. It's just it's just crazy. Uh, politics is just crazy, and of course, the media right on cue. The supercut there, the gratuitous, gratuitous, the gratuitous report <laughs> from the special prosecutor who was praised by Dick Durbin, by the way, in the beginning of this process as a man of integrity. These, these talking point, uh, these talking point people. It's okay to like change a word or two in there, guys, when you get your talking points from like. I, I'll tell you what, uh, say what you want or like or not like Scott Adams, his tweet, his ex, his post, uh, I think yesterday was spot on. He said, Trump is favored by voters who think our top priorities are crime, border security, economy, and unnecessary foreign spending. Biden is favored by people who still think the news is real. That's your whole story. That was his, that was his tweet. So maybe, maybe, I don't know. We're going to see, right? These guys that I will say this, they take their marching orders and they, pretty seriously. Yeah, man. It's a, it's a, they're, they're all Marines, right? They get their orders and they, they <laughs> do it, man. And they just don't do anything else. that isn't in the orders. It's, it's, it's pretty remarkable. It's gratuitous. The whole they, can't gratuitous. Even, they can't even change the words around, right? Gratuitous. Seriously. You think you changed the order or something. It seems gratuitous. It appeared somewhat perfunctory. Um, it, it whatever. Uh, and we haven't featured our beloved vice president in a while. Uh, the work of community work is work. To uh, and then we had a we tailed it off with a little deep, a uh, little uh, uh, just just to remind folks that this is legitimately, legitimately mirroring that show on HBO. Like her her whole like her whole speech and cadence is just one continuous word salad. I would like to, uh, in my announcements, I'd like to apologize for the viewers. My voice is a little scratchy, taking one of those uh, inhalers to prevent uh, my cold from becoming a lung deal. So uh, you'll just have to deal this week. And also, we are going to try, at least, we have so much show here, but we're going to try to keep it brief because uh, Mike conducted another interview this week with Ryan Walters, the Oklahoma Superintendent of Public Instruction. Mike liked him so much the last go round, he uh, decided to interview him again. So we'll play that a little bit later in the show. And all kidding, it's a he's a really solid dude, and it's a it's a critical and important uh, issue set uh, the education of our children. So uh, thank you, Mike, for doing that. I was busy trying to raise money for our beloved institution while you were conducting the interview. So I appreciate that. And I don't have any other announcements other than I hope everyone has a, who, who, who does these things have a, um, a reflective and um, productive uh, Lenten journey here on our way to Easter.
Yeah. Uh, yeah, I have one announcement real quick. We made a mistake last week. We identified Chris Coons as the guy, the senator, the Democratic senator. You mean the guy who said who, the media should be focusing on bo- Biden's border and at work yeah so. who's securing the border it's not president biden anyway we identified christopher coons as the guy who was negotiating the border deal the short-lived and unlamented border deal we we're actually wrong um one of our listeners pointed out it was chris murphy i'm like how I appreciate that we got it wrong, and I appreciate the correction. I would point out that there is literally no way to figure out these the difference between these old white dudes and the Democratic Party. Well, come on. I was going to say, especially they're, they're those two, right? They're all the same. I mean, come on. But, you know, it is uh, – we like to get it right here on the Unregulated Podcast, so we thank our listeners uh, for pointing out uh, when we do get it wrong. Any other announcements, sir? I think that's it. Gotcha. All right. Well, what happened today – in 270, in the year 270. What is it? Oh, well, I assume St. Valentine died. That is correct. St. Valentine was put to death by the Emperor Claudius because uh, he believed that Roman men were unwilling to join the army because of their strong attachment to their wives and families and hence banned all marriages and engagements in Rome. However, St. Valentine, a um, Catholic priest, defied Claudius and continued to perform marriages for young lovers in secret. So they popped him. It, it, you kind of wonder about the Roman Empire, man. They had some weird rules. You know, they outlawed, they outlawed pants. I did not know that. Like they yeah, did somewhere, somewhere in the fourth century. What was the rationale for that? That, that, that only the barbarians wore pants. So, so somewhere in the what, what were they wearing? Like the tunics? The yeah, they were the, the tunics. Yeah, stuff? they were they were tunics. You could, but but it was like the third. Togas. It was the third oh, century. Yeah. You couldn't you couldn't wear pants. I'm like, what? Who who in the world? What goes on with these people? So, um, loosely loosely, it, it is rumored that uh, while in jail, uh, before he was uh, murdered, executed, head cut off. He left a farewell note for a jailer's daughter who became his friend and signed it from your Valentine. So there you go. And I don't think anybody knows that. I mean, very few people may know that this day is named in honor of a saint, but that's another story. In 601, we're going all that we're doing the way, way back machine here in 601. That's why you have to say St. Valentine's Day. Um Oh, I have this feeling I should know this, but I don't. Go ahead. So this is may or may not be entirely accurate, but the but the working theory is uh, on uh, in, in 601, Pope Gregory moved the start of Lent to 46 days before Easter and established Ash Wednesday at that time. You sure that wasn't 501? Uh, this is this the source because you're going to ask me that the source for this was the Museum of the Bible, so I think they're I don't wrong. know I think they're wrong could be wrong. Um, I'm saying I I don't have like perfect accuracy here, but I was trying to find the origin of Ash Wednesday. Yeah, uh, and this was one source that I found. Yeah, so. the, the only reason I think it was five hundred one, not six hundred one, is Gregory was 
ruled through the through the turn of that century, and he was the one who made the he was the one who set the calendar, both the church and the um, civil calendars. So I'm betting that's 501. I don't want to disagree with the guys at the Museum of the Bible, but they might want to go back and do their homework. All right, I will uh, inquire with them. So the symbolism <laughs> of marking oneself with ashes traces its history to ancient traditions. It's in the Old Testament in several references um, where they denote mourning, mortality, and penance. Mordecai, for example, puts on sackcloth and ashes when he hears of the decree of King Asher, Asher Asorius of Persia to kill all of the Jewish people in the Persian Empire. Several references. In 1989, sir, this happened. Oh, boy. See, 501, I get. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, boy. I, uh, the Berlin Wall fell. Now, in this, on this day, Ayatollah Khomeini of Iran issued a fatwa yeah, and offered a bounty for the assassination of author Salman Rushdie. Yeah, because of the satanic verses. For his verses. novel, The Satanic Verses. Which, by the way, is completely unreadable, so he should have. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah, maybe he should have done the fatwa because of that. Yeah, I was going to say, he should have said, look. I, no. yeah. So he managed to, um, you know, not be killed, but he was stabbed in 2022. Yeah. After rush, after a dude rushed onto the stage where he was scheduled to, to deliver an event lecture at chautauqua in chautauqua new york isn't that the home of the clintons chautauqua uh no Ch no no chappaqua is where this chappaqua is. that's right so anyhow and also um he so, is probably more famous for being married for about three years to uh um uh, what's her name there um Pat padma lashmi lakshmi really yeah okay so he was like 54. She was like 37. There's a whole bunch of reasons not to like this guy. I, you know, not, <laughs> not saying not saying the Iranian, you know, the, the the mullah was right, but at a certain point, you're like, well, uh, wouldn't want to sit on a jury there. All right. Uh, do you want to talk more about this this Biden deal? Um, the special prosecutor for those who uh, live under a rock um, cleared Biden of any wrongdoing for hoarding classified documents in his garage next to his Corvette simply uh, and most likely because um, no jury would convict him because he's old and senile. Actually, I want to point out that in February 14th, 1989, I was still working for the, um, the 1989 inaugural. We were wrapping it up. It was great. It was a great, the greatest six weeks of my life. We, oh, we, look at you we reminiscing had, about the good old we, days. We had, we had almost no work to do. We'd show up, we'd do whatever work we had to do, and then we'd have lunch. It was great. Um, yeah, I, I think everybody gets all tangled up in a knot about the gratuitous, which I assume now an official kind of adjective has to go with that. The gratuitous um, pointing out that, that you know, he would come across to a jury as a uh, – an elderly, a sympathetic elderly man with a poor memory, which, by the way, is I, I think that that should be a campaign slogan for the guys. And they shouldn't be getting upset about it. Um, the thing that the thing that everybody has managed to avoid, elude, not talk about is her basically said, I think this guy's guilty. The only reason I'm, I'm not taking it to court is because I don't think I can win. Um, and that's the important part, the front part. I don't think I can win because I, you know, a jury will perceive this guy as a sympathetic elderly man 
who's somewhat confused and has a bad memory. I'm like, okay. So all these guys yeah. are get all upset about the last part of that. Somebody should just say, hey, look, the front part of it is essentially, you know, they think they think he's guilty of it, right? Which if and Trump, as is he is wont to do, right? Mr. Trump made that exact point the next day. He's like, you know, he talked all about the first part of that sentence, not the second part. So Sure. You know, it it, it I mean it's clearly he clearly broke the law, you know. So so you know, the, we had a clip for the uh, beginning, which showed a survey. It was like 70 plus percent uh, said that this this age and mental acuity thing was uh, major or moderate concern. And then 53 percent of which were Democrats. I don't know. I mean, if if Biden and Trump are the two people who are still alive and on the ballot uh, on November, whatever day that is, third it, I don't think it's going to matter because, you know, they're going to they're going to vote for Biden. They're not going to vote for Trump. They're not going to say, "Oh, I'm just going to sit it out." They might, right? So who do who do they lose? Um, because he's an old guy. Who do they lose? Big. Because he's an old guy who 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 basically said that Francois Mitterrand from Germany, which wow, that was a blast from the past, Mitterrand. The low, so. the low, yes, yeah, seriously, the low, like wow, the low, um, the low intensity, the low information voters, they lose those guys, right? And then that's not an insignificant amount. The other thing that's going to happen this campaign, this election, um, it's not that people are going to show up and vote for Trump. It's that people are not going to show up, and that's the real risk to the Biden team is not that they have a lot of vote switchers. It's that they have a lot of erosion. What does it matter? Because they harvest those voters anyway, especially in the swing states. I mean, we're not really going to do this, are we? No, I'm not saying that it's I'm not questioning the integrity of it. I'm just saying that, it, OK, I'm I'm jumping ahead here, but our friend. Uh, not our friend, but uh, Democrat uh, Representative Tom Susie won the New York election last night. Yeah. 54-46. It wasn't really close. Yeah. And um, he crushed this uh, legislator, Maisie Phillip, Phillip, in the mail-in stuff. Yes. Now, there's a lot of other things to be said. She was a ghost. She ran a basement campaign thinking maybe somehow she could just ride the whole Im immigration issue to, to, to get elected, but it's a Biden district and all that other stuff. But the point I'm trying to make is that they're really good at this yes. ballot mail, mail in ballot stuff. Yes. And the Dem and the Republicans are going to, I think this year have finally decided they're going to play ball, but I they have some catch up to do. Right. I think they're, they're about, they're about 80% caught up, not hundred percent, about 80% caught up. Yes. Look, Absolutely, turnout is going to be less important than it usually is, but it's still going to be important. And, um, you know, it, it in the eight or in the seven or eight states that matter, there's going to be so many eyeballs on it that everyone's going to have to play pretty squeaky. So, I'm not, I'm not thinking about that, but I am thinking that there's no way Biden's going to get 80 million votes this time. It's just not going to happen, right? Their their erosion is going to be pretty significant. It, it, you know how much how many votes the boss gets i have no idea but i suspect you know we're looking at a race where there'll be 150 million votes cast however in whatever format and 
both sides will wind up getting like 75 million. I just don't know the composition of where they get those 75 million. And you know the 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 um, you know I do not discount the possibility that that Mr. Biden has a really bad senior moment on camera at some point, and and the the thing's over. Right at that point, everybody flees because some fundamental. Well, yeah, I mean, he certainly um, has a he's the odds-on favorite to have one of those. Um, more so, I think than than President Trump. But Trump, you know, he's not a, a spring chicken anymore either. So. Anyway, um, how many of us are? Heck, I forget stuff. I still can't remember the Chancellor name. Chancellor Helmut Kohl. Okay, so in that in that Seriously. righteous indignation of a speech he gave, he he actually said that the guy uh, the, the, that the border uh, in in um, the Middle East was was Mexico. Did you catch that? Yeah, that he got the he got the Egyptian president tangled up with Mexico and that stuff. Yeah, yeah in yeah. the same exact rant that he gave. So anyway, I just you know I it, it's it's a steady and slow erosion, and that's the that's the tricky part, right? It's a steady and slow erosion. And that's why Trump's ahead in all these surveys, right? It's not that he's doing so much better. It's just he he's not eroding quite like our, the current occupant. Yeah. All right, so um, Hogan. Oh, those who know where that is, Larry. (laughs) Larry. So, former Governor Larry Hogan is in. He's running for Senate in Maryland. I don't know. Is he is he trying to ride Trump's coattails in Maryland? I'm not sure what what's the logic there. Yeah, he's got more work to do. I, I get the feeling he's bored. I don't know what guy. You know, like it, it. It. I will say this much, right? In the in the race, there's two Democrats, right? Who are going to? I think their primaries in May. Dave Trone, um, who made his money on the Total Wine. Yeah. Stores. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you're spending millions and millions of dollars. Oh by yeah, the way. yeah. It, it, this guy, this guy, I, I, I have, I have a friend in common with this guy. This guy blew like ten million bucks, like to to send or a million, ten million. It was a bunch of money to send like everybody he knew to the Super Bowl a couple of years back. He like, you know, private jet, the whole nine yards. Um, so he, you know, money's no object. And Angela, uh, also Brooks, right? Who's a, I want to say PG County, um, supervisor. Um, or delegate, something like that. Anyway, the you know she's a she's a um, black female, and Dave is a um, white guy. Um, it, it, I, Larry could win this thing. Larry could win no, this. Thing. They haven't had a Democrat. They haven't had a, who was the last Republican? Brock. Somebody said thirty years ago, and so the only name I can come up with is Mac Mathias. I think Matthias? I think Mac wow. Matthias was probably the last state guy, statewide guy they had back because I'm thinking 30 years ago that would have been Mac, right? Um, so it's been a long time. Um, I will point out that there are pockets of Maryland that are solidly Republican, right? Um, but Mon- they always get overwhelmed by Montgomery County and Baltimore County. So I don't know what's going to happen. But Larry's won twice statewide, which is two more times than anybody else in the race. Yeah, that's true. That is true. Um, and you know, and he 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 he's perfectly comfortable torching President Trump. So you know, he's he's crossed that Rubicon. He's just like, yeah, you know that. So I, it could be an interesting race. 
I, I, while we were talking, I looked up on the Google machines, uh, John, I'm sorry, J. Glenn Beal. Yeah. It looks like he was the last Republican. No, no, no. Bob Ehrlich. Yep. Bob Ehrlich. No, he was a he was a congressman, not no, a senator. I'm sorry, Jay. Who? It. What was he? It says here on the Google machines. Oh no! Yeah, it was Matthias. I go. take it back. You're there right. You it go. was Matthias. Right, Charles and... Matthias. Ladies, okay, ladies and gentlemen, this is your weekly reminder. I'm never wrong. <laughs> Oh boy. And so <laughs> humble. And so humble. Keep, right, keep, keep, any... keep keeping in mind I had to issue a correction at the beginning. Yeah, of the show. yeah I was just gonna say what happened in your house. <laughs> so uh do you any more politics for you or can we move on to the shenanigans on Capitol Hill? Yeah, let's waste our time with the hill. Go ahead. All right. So the Senate got their spending their their foreign aid package out out 21 Republicans. Joined, um, um, I think, all but two Democrats to spend ungodly amounts of money in Ukraine, a little bit in Israel, and some other odds and ends. Senator and Minority Leader McConnell uh, is is like running around doing victory laps, talking about how this is like his legacy, and I, I don't know. I think where the end is near for Senator McConnell. I, I just. I don't see, I don't see him being the leader next next Congress. That's yeah. that's my assessment on this situation. Yeah, I'm sorry. He's, he's badly misreading the Republicans. Yeah, I'm starting. Republican to think you're, I'm starting to think you're right. I mean, this obsession with Ukraine is. I mean, I get Romney because I think you know half his family is benefiting from some kind of uh, arrangement over there, but um, I, I'm, I'm a little confused about, about McConnell's I, I, you know, this is dug the, in on this issue. It's a little perplexing to me. This is, this is, I mean, they're, they're, I get this all the time from my friends. Oh, this is a cheap way to degrade the Russians, blah, 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 all that other stuff. I'm like, did, did we make some kind of a decision that the Russians are our adversaries now? I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't like the Russians either, but, when did we decide they were they were the enemies and the Ukrainians are our friends? When when did that when did we vote on that? And we spent like 150 million billion north of that now. It it's crazy. And and I think most Americans look at it like this is seriously crazy, guys. What are you doing? And I got to agree with you on McConnell. I think it's just a, a wrong read of where everybody is. And, and you know, we're going to – I mean, it's going to – something's going to pass the House, right? The question is, is I think Speaker Johnson should do what he's – I don't know if he's going to do. But what he should do is staple H.R. 2 onto it and make everybody vote on both. Um, yeah, I, I know he's um, – I know that uh, there's talk about him – putting elements of hr2 like they once again the republicans are negotiating against themselves but the rumor is, is a lot of democrats won't, won't vote for it uh if it has that in it and 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 if it doesn't um some of them won't either because of the israel stuff so great problem solved exactly the other thing that happened is that the house impeached a sitting cabinet member for the first time in 150 years 150 plus years uh senator i'm uh, sorry uh 
Homeland Security Czar, uh, Chair, Secretary Mayorkas, Alejandro Mayorkas. Has, has been impeached. What a, uh, will there be a trial in the Senate? Who could possibly and, care? And if so, uh, how long will it last? What a colossal waste of time. I, I've never seen it. <sighs> Boy. You know, it used to be Washington was the town of the stupid party and the evil party, but now it's just become the party, the town of like the trivial party. And they're all in the middle. Everybody is just trivial. Who cares? Who cares who runs the Department of Homeland Security? What conceivable difference could it make to anybody's life? It, it's it's the problem is it's Mr. Biden. It doesn't make any difference who what stooge he sends down to run it. What is wrong with these people? What country are they from? Where they where they learn how to do this stuff? It's insane. It really is. Well, it does tie up the Senate. Uh, if they started They're not going to do a trial. trial. They're not going to do a trial. Are you crazy? They're not going to do a trial. Why would they? And we've got what? When is the spending deadline? We got till the, we got what? Three or four legislative days until they're out. I think we got March 2nd and March 9th. A couple of weeks. Yeah. It's, it's, we're down to that. Yeah. It, it, and then they'll be back. Uh, I think. So, so thank God. Thank, thank God. I think we're, we're about four or five legislative days from shutdown again. Yeah. So, so, so thank God we spent some time impeaching. What's his name again? An incre- that, inc- that incredibly compli- you know, uh, uh, consequential figure of American politics, Alejandro Mayorkas. So, so um, sorry, it's just this thing. Somebody, this- one of our dear friends, and I'm not, we're not going to do this on this episode, but I want to plant the flag for you. Somebody, our dear friend, said, "Is this deal, this immigration deal that died before it was, uh, before it was stillborn, is in essence?" Was was it substantive? And my thought was, it doesn't really matter because there are plenty of laws already on the books that the administration isn't enforcing. That's right. So what what really would it matter if they changed the law when you have an administration that is essentially ignoring, letting it. you know, ignoring the the ones that are on the books anyway? So that would be my assessment, Lou, of the situation. Is no matter how stringent or tough the uh-huh. the, the 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 Langford thing was. It wouldn't matter when you have an administration that is not interested in, I'll give you, in I'll give shutting you. the border down. That's right. So. That, 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 that's the absolute right answer. I will give you – yes, it was – the question is, was it, was it substantive? Yes, it was substantive, but it was bad. The substance was bad. It wasn't good substance. It would have allowed 2 million illegals into the country every year before you even started to think about enforcement. So it, it was not good. There was no good thing about it. It did not increase anything. It did not amplify anything good, and it did not diminish anything bad that was go- that's going on. So, so once again, just just to remind our listeners, your solution to the border crisis is to clamp down on corporate corporations being able to hire these workers. Correct? Yeah, this is not complicated. You know, reduce the incentives. And increase the penalties. It's just—it's exactly why. It's exactly how we approach almost every other public policy issue. You know, it, reduce the incentives for criminality, increase the penalties for criminality, and you'll have less criminality. Hey, shocker. Speaking of, and I'm going way off topic here, but the—I uh, read this didn't include it uh, as a uh, clip, but the 
mayors of the big towns, big cities in in California are endorsing a ballot measure this year that will that will strengthen what was weakened in a ballot measure a couple decades back on on uh, minimum minimums for for theft for yeah. retail theft and some other stuff. Yeah. Did you catch that? I didn't. I wasn't aware of that, but I'm glad. Yeah. So the crime bill, the, the ballot measure that passed that basically let everyone yeah. have all kinds of, you know, uh, get out of jail free cards for drugs and, and these kind of things. Uh, they're going to hold on to some of that, uh, leave some of it in place, but they're focusing now on getting rid of the criminality uh, going on uh, in the cities. Yeah. So. Shocker. Turn, turn, turns out citizenry doesn't, doesn't, doesn't like criminality. What shocked. I'm I'm amazed. I the it, first it, it 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 but the good news is we impeached Alejandro Mayorkas, so that was the good. first in and out is closing in Oakland. The I first ever in and out burger. Yeah, I saw that. So saw that, that tells you that tells you a lot. <laughs> yeah. Well it, it it closed. The Denny's the Denny's down the street closed. The you know, that that airport, which has actually gotten busier, is now just a an island. It it yeah, whatever. It, if, if you know, if I was if I was running against Gavin Newsom, that's the first thing I'd ask. When are you guys going to fix Oakland? What are you going to do about Oakland? All right, uh, switching topics to energy. Yeah. This was from Politico uh, on the eleventh, from our from crack reporter Catherine Morehouse, crack for reporter. Let the let the record show that I have already I say, contacted the reporter with several recommendations I about say how the story with, could have been improved. I say that with a grain of salt. Departure at critical energy regulator threatens to stymie clean power. Flummox. I thought it was going to flummox. Allison Clement's decision to exit the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission could leave agency in a bind as it tries to update rules needed to prepare the grid for a green power build-out. Uh said Clements told Politico she will not seek another term on the commission. The um, And let's see, the choice quote that I have from Catherine Morehouse is, Clements, who has a background as an environmental attorney, often drew the ire of Capitol Hill Republicans. During a hearing on Capitol Hill last year, Senator Josh Hawley pressed her on a largely debunked accusation from conservative media groups that her attendance at a clean energy group foundation's dinner was improper. Yeah, I saw that, that, you know, I, whatever. I, you know, there's, there's, there's some, there's some hard hitting journalism right there. <laughs> we still have not gotten any of the ethics documents in, in a non-redacted form, any of them. It's been almost 18 months. Yeah, you never will. Don't be ridiculous. We will. We'll get them shortly after she leaves, was, just like we got all the documents from Glick shortly say, after he left. Shoot's going to be over. And by the way, uh, Commissioner Glick wrote a, a, a note. Uh, speaking from personal experience, it isn't easy when professional climate deniers take hot shots at your credibility simply for having the temerity to acknowledge the energy transition is taking place around this country. Yeah, I, you know, I like Rich a lot. Um, 
I would point out the energy transition is not, in fact, taking place anywhere in this country. <laughs> Wait, are you kidding? I, I'm a little, I'm a little concerned that that a that a former FERC chairman is is not quite as read into the actual data as he maybe should be. Oh yeah, yeah. So I wonder who that professional climate denier is he's talking about. Who knows? I, I you know, it's, it's probably you. All I have to say is you're welcome, America. Oh, and by the way, I don't know if you saw this. But um, the same day that Clemens leaked this to her her friend Catherine, the Biden administration uh, removed acting from from Commissioner Phillips's from Chairman Phillips's title. So yeah, those two things are related, right? Uh, sh no, she are she, they? she she um, she made that announcement. She gave that to Twitter about ninety minutes after the the announcement was made about Chairman Phillips. There are folks inside the building, and I, I agree with them, um, that that was done intentionally on her part to step on that. You know, that was a, it was a bit of vindictiveness on her part. I, I hope that's wrong. I hope that's wrong, but I'm not sure. Well, all I know is, is we have a reasonable commissioner who recognizes the importance of elect, uh, reliability uh, and has been approving things that I would guess a chairman Clements would sit on. So that's my, that's my personal opinion about that. Did you see this? EPA is on, this is, they're so good, dude. They are so good. This is from E&E news. EPA targets 400 hires for climate infrastructure laws in 2024. EPA is pushing to hire for hundreds of job openings this year as the agency strives to fulfill its expanded mandate under Joe Biden's trademark climate and infrastructure laws. Um, the agency has, skipping forward, the agency has been on a hiring spree during the Biden administration. In 2023, EPA brought on 1,977 new employees, surpassing its hiring goal. Yeah, for purposes of comparison, I think there are about 16,000 employees at EPA. So a couple thousand employees is a lot to bring. It's a lot, lot, lot to bring in. And 400 just to run the climate stuff, that's a lot too. They're, they're, I don't say they're trying to pack the agency, but yikes. I you don't think? Yeah, you are. Like, I'm saying they're trying to pack the agency. I give, I give, because I even, give, if, even if President Trump or the – Whoever the, the the next president is, if it's not Biden, even if they get rid of say a thousand employees, they're still they're still plus, you know. Yes, 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 yes. It's going to be. And what are all the stories going to be from from the politicos and the news crack reporters? Trump cuts EPA, devastating cuts to staff, morale is down, blah blah blah. Right. Yeah. 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 It. 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 It's smart. Protect yourself, right? They're, they're doing the smart thing. We haven't talked about solar in a while. So I wanted to bring a couple of stories up. This one is from Wall Street Journal. Residential solar confronts a critical year. High rates and less generous subsidies have pushed some rooftop companies into bankruptcy. Sunlight Financial, a financial provider for rooftop solar, declared bankruptcy in October. Um, 
a rooftop solar and storage provider in December uh, filing flagged the risk of defaulting on some of its debt and said there was substantial doubt about the ability to continue as a growing concern. Um, let's see. Let me give you some numbers here. The average quoted interest rate on consumer uh, solar loans is 6.5% so far this year, a steep climb from 2.45 in the first quarter of 2022. Making matters worse, California last year reduced the amount that rooftop solar systems get for selling excess electricity. That effectively cut the value of solar export credits by about 75% on average. And Wood McHenry expects there be to 12% fewer U.S. residential solar installations in 2024 than 2023, the first annual contraction since 2017. Solar stocks are already reflecting a lot of pessimism. They've slumped over 30% in the past 12 months. Sun power is down 77%. Solar inverter providers, M phase and Solar Edge, are down 42 and 74%, respectively. Yeah. Yeah, there's no good news out there for that crowd. It, it you know, you, you, well, whatever. I mean, everybody's got their deficiencies, right? The deficiency on the wind side is they got to build a lot of transmission and not likely to get that done. I I am aware that these guys, and this is going to, this is a story that's going to emerge here shortly. I'm aware that these guys' anxiety level is very high with respect to the, a new administration. Um, well, I mean, even without a new administration, we're in the middle of an administration that is, couldn't be any more generous. That's right. And they're still having and trouble. and look what the look at the trouble that they're having. Look at the trouble offshore wind is having and everything else. So yeah. Uh and here's another one. And I this mean gets... eventually, and that's what I was gonna say, right? Eventually economics and physics um punish you for not paying attention to their rules. They just do. This from uh, also from the Wall Street Journal. Can the US break China's grip on solar? China controls the bulk of the world's solar supply chain. Now the U.S. is trying to build its own. Uh, the primary building block for some 97% of the world's solar panels is high-purity silicon or polysilicon. The U.S. is trying to close the gap with big production incentives, a.k.a. subsidies, tied to each major stage of the process. Manufacturers say the subsidies are for the first time making factories in the U.S. financially feasible, uh, but not all parts of the supply chain can qualify for supporting companies say that with inflation and ballooning capital costs, combined with a crash in solar prices, the, the gap is widening. This article goes on to state that China makes more than 97% of the world's solar ingots and wafers the u.s makes none yeah yeah i mean look can the united states like break the chinese hammerlock on this thing yes are they gonna no you know we we would we would need some years of mining and intense attention to the to the value chain and that's just not going to happen we just don't well the i mean the other factor is power okay Right. I mean, you, we have plenty of we have plenty of power. We have plenty of power, but we don't have low cost power. We got plenty. China of, has. We got plenty of low cost power. We just don't use it. Okay. Well, but 
I, I, I know where you're going. Go ahead. China's electricity costs are 30% below the global industrial average in the areas where they're making this stuff in addition to employing slaves to make it. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it it's because they don't care. So, um, and it's fine. It, it's fancy, right? It's fanciful to imagine that, that somehow we're going to wake up one morning, anytime in our lifetimes, and the Americans are going to control more than 50% of the solar panel market. That's just, that's not going to happen. It's like yeah. it's like the batteries. It's not gonna happen with the batteries either. This is crazy talk. That energy transition so, that energy transition that Chairman Glick was talking about, it it's it's I don't want to say it's mythical, but it's it's starting to appear to be mythical. Well, that's a good segue, but before I get to that, I want to say this. You know, I've had some thoughts about all of this. You know, President Biden and this uh and all the money that they're pouring into this, ironically, is contributing to the to the major problem with this and that is is there's less money the money isn't free anymore and and that's one of the biggest factors in in the slowdown across the entire quote green energy space uh and that's a making that's a that's a making uh uh of the of these policies of binomics yeah for the most right i mean yeah look this this the scale people don't understand the scale and scope of things right you know the federal the federal government in the in the inflation reduction act even on the rescored trillion and a half dollars that means they're giving you 150 billion dollars a year but it's to do all kinds of different things 150 billion dollars a year if it was just focused on ev chargers if it was just focused on ev chargers you'd have a fighting chance of building enough ev chargers in this country to make a difference if it was just focused, but then you couldn't do anything else. You couldn't do the EV tax credits or any of that other stuff, any of the wind and solar, any of the battery stuff. If it was just focused on wind and solar, you could maybe prop those industries up and make them grow for like six or seven years. But you know what? At some point, subsidies run out. It just do, right? It. I just – like I've said – I said this a hundred times before. I say it to customers all the time. If your business model relies on cash from the federal government – you do not have a business model. No, you do not. It, that's it, it, that's our whole entire philosophy and mission, right? It, 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 and I think that the smart companies get that, and I don't think the, the dopey ones do. That may be the difference between smart companies and dopey companies, right? You want a priority list for the next administration if it if if it's inclined to try and get a handle on spending. Anything that can exist without the subsidy should be the first thing on the list to be cut. Yeah. Yeah, but you know how this goes, right? Everyone's going to spend a bunch of money on lobbyists, and there's going to be a phase out of the EV tax credit, and a phase out of this, and a phase out of that. Nothing's going to get zeroed, and then you know how that you know how that goes too, right? You, everyone fights the phase out starting immediately. You know, more years and a slower glide path. You know, all that stuff. It, it speaking as a speaking as a professional lobbyist, I'm very grateful for that. But speaking as an American, I'm like it's a bit of a racket. All right, I have a lot more. Yes. We also want to squeeze this interview in, so let's cut to that now, and then we'll we'll get what we can in for the rest. It might go a little long, but you know, it'll give our our audience uh, a little bit of a bonus here on Valentine's Day, a little more love from Tom and Mike. So, here is Mike's interview with Superintendent Ryan Walters. Ryan Walters. Yeah. Hey, everybody, we're with Ryan Walters, who's the um, 
superintendent of public schools in the state of Oklahoma. We've had him on before, a very interesting, um, a very interesting person, and a very a person who you are going to hear more from in the future. Um, so I wanted to re-up a couple of things. Ryan, tell us what you've been up to since we've seen you last. I think it was about six, seven months ago. Oh, boy, we've been having some fun here in Oklahoma, taking on the radical left and getting our schools back on track. We've launched uh, free market principles in Oklahoma. We have merit pay now. We have a signing bonus for teachers. We've driven the unions out of school. We just recently got some drag queens out of our schools as well oh, and have reintroduced a back to the basics plan. They'll talk about math, reading, and science and what do you know, real history, like American history, not this nonsense we're seeing from, you know, the 1619 project. So we're, we're, we're really moving and shaking here in Oklahoma. I appreciate that very much. Let me ask you something topical, something that's in the news. You may not have seen it. Randy Weingarten um, encouraged the ceasefire uh, in Gaza. Two, two questions. First off, what do you think about that? And second off, and I don't mean to be that person, but what in the name of the living God does that have to do with public school education? Yeah, I mean, and it just I guess it's just more to keep up with Randy Weingarten is literally wrong on everything. So it's just, you know, not surprised <laughs> she, there. But I mean she wanted to maintain her perfect her perfect record. Yeah, right. So I mean, she's I will give her credit. She's consistent. I mean, you know, she you know, my favorite uh, response I always see, you know, Corey D'Angelo is from AFC always does this, but she'll post something and parents will just go crazy and then she'll cl close her replies, you know, because I mean she just didn't want to hear it at that point. And every time he he tweets at her and says Oh, I see you close the replies just like you close the schools. I'm like, oh my goodness. Winner. Every <laughs> it 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 um it's a little odd that that everybody's decided this is the hill they're gonna die on. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna defend Hamas. Um, it's not it's not what I would have had in my bingo card for this year. Um nope, it's an interesting play, you know, and I mean it's one of those things where you know uh you know i don't know how the left can be more out of step with your you know average american but they they seem to find a way to do it yeah um all right let's get back to public education or education in general for a second what are the next three states who are the next three states which are the ne which are the next three states um that are going to get um going to flip over and uh, and embrace school choice or parental choice really is really is a better is a better way to phrase that. Great question. There's two states that I've been watching and, and doing some work with that I think are right there. Of course, Texas. Um, you know, I, I've been doing some uh, um, calls into Texas and working down with some Texas officials of hey, you got to get this across the finish line. I know we're supposed to be rivals, uh, but come on, we want all your kids to have school choice. Appreciate Governor Abbott down there really carrying the torch for school choice. I think they're close. Uh, I think they'll get it across the finish line. And of course, I'm going to do all I can here in Oklahoma to help them there. It's a similar problem we had here in Oklahoma where you just had these, you know, every rural school is going to shut down if, if you have school choice lies that they have just pushed across that state. But I think they're close. Um, and Tennessee is the other one I've been uh, watching closely. Um, I think Tennessee is very close. Uh, Governor Bill Lee gave a great uh, state of the state the other day where he really leaned into it very hard, very direct. Um, so I know that they've got uh, got it set up pretty well there. And so I, I think those two states are really set up um, to get it done. This is a this is a predict a future question. Um, right. Every political movement has limits and constraints. How many states are going to wind up with with parental choice before it's all over? I mean, at, at what point at what point is it going to be? You know, we're going to be I don't want to say saturated, but we're going to be a top. We're going to be a peak. 
Are we going to have all 50 or is it going to be like 43 or what? Uh, you know, that's a great question. I, I think that we're going to have the red states. Wyoming's another one. Wyoming's close. I've been doing some work there with some of the legislators in Wyoming. Um, you know, I just don't know that a state like California, New Jersey, you know, New York, you know, you have some of these that are really going to fight um, back on some of it. I think they'll allow part, partial school choice, charter schools in a very limited capacity. You know, this is part of the new, well, we'll let, you know, one or two charters, if if the local school district will allow them to be charged, you know, I think you'll get some things like that, but the full universal school choice, I think every red state should have it within three or four years. I, I just, I believe that you're seeing that type of wave. But, you know, the blue states, I'm just not sure how much the Democrats are just so in the pocket of the teachers unions that they're going to allow it. I think they'll allow little, little bits of it like that, yeah. but I just don't know that they're going to allow the full universal school choice in those blue states until we have some, uh, swing in the elections there yeah i have i have a couple of i have a couple of follow-ons from that um and i have my own thoughts but I'd, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts at 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 what point if ever does this become a wedge issue and i don't i don't mean to be that i don't mean to be purely political about it but at, at what point does this become an important enough issue in um in minority communities that that they themselves right the black folks hispanic folks um start to insist on that right it, it, it and is that is that ever big enough to overcome the the union resistance in blue states so um here's how i would answer that you know i think we saw it in florida i mean you had a block in florida that pushed DeSantis over uh oh my goodness not sure blank on his name but over the other gentleman there to win the governorship and it was literally you had these school choice moms yeah from the black that came out and said, I mean, literally, this you're going to shut down our charter schools. Okay, the Sanders is our guy. Then, yeah, um, I think that you're going to see some more yeah, of that. And we had some of that in Wisconsin, right? There was that that lady in Milwaukee. Um, I can't remember her Absolutely. name. That's a, that's a shame on my part. I'm sorry about that. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt. But, but you, you've got to have uh, the problem in the blue states, though, is you got to have some school choice to build up the constituency of folks that's, yeah. that start demanding it to to grow, and so. One of the things I've tried to work closely with parents from across our state and other states is to say, guys, what you've got to be able to do is, you, yes, is, is when you build in a constituency, you want to mobilize them. But we've really got to turn it up a notch and to convince parents to demand something they don't currently have and to say, listen, you know, I am in the school. I want access to these other schools and create a block out of that, which has been tougher to do. Uh, again, in red states, I think that the conservatives have done a great job of appealing to parents on the whole, listen, we believe in family values. So if you really believe in family values and you want a family to be able to make decisions like this, and frankly, you don't want your kid wrapped in a school where they're talking about transgenderism. You don't want these type of issues in, in, inside your kid's school. So I think those two things combined have really allowed the conservative groups um, to really message this well and get out the vote and get folks mobilized. But on the on, on the on the blue side, of, you know, on the blue states, I just don't know I don't know what that how you build a constituency when the Democrat Party has just been so, yeah. um, you know, so targeted against it. Yeah, tough, t tough to explain why people need something they don't see or live with every day, right? Um, yeah. All right, let, let me let me ask this question. I don't expect you to have any answer to it, but but I, I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts. Um, let's say we do have a red state blue. We do, in fact, have a red state blue state divide. Like we're just gonna we're just gonna um, formalize it 
put some concrete in it, right, over the next five or six years. How long is that going to take before it becomes a dispositive advantage? I'm thinking about economic advantage for the red states, that they just have a better educated citizenry. At, at, what, at what point does that sh start showing up in economic data, I guess is what I'm asking. I think we're close. I think we're close to seeing that already because, you know, what has really exacerbated the divides is school choice is obviously going to be very successful in, in red states. Also, a focus on academics is going to help in red states. But the left going so far into the indoctrination, I don't know if you just saw that study on that woke kindergarten, you know, what do you know? Academic results went way down. It's like, well, well of course. I think that because of the lack of focus on academics, you see, you know, we have a state pulling, a Washington state pulling AP classes because, you know, AP classes are now racist somehow. Um, and, and so you're, you're going to start seeing this, I think, very rapidly. And you're not going to have students that are entering the workforce. You're not going to have ACT scores are going to drop. Um, again, you know, we're seeing a boom here in Oklahoma for the trade schools. Our technical schools are booming right now. We're giving out record amounts of certificates. We are going to boost enrollment in those programs for another year. And so we're seeing that growth in red states. And I think you're going to see data within the next few years that's really going to clarify, like we saw with the states that shut schools down versus states that didn't, I think you're going to continue to see that divide continue as those kind of woke um, education models continue to thrive and, and grow in our um, blue states. Okay. I want you to clear your head of school, of parental choice. I keep wanting to call it school choice. It's parental choice, kids. Um I want you to um, I want you to think about think about this question for a second. What is the next frontier yeah. on this issue? I, and when I say this issue, I mean education. What's what's the next frontier on 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 uh, K through twelve on primary education? So I think this is a large part of where our school choice advocates are looking for. What do we do next? I mentioned technical trade schools. I think we've got to get more students involved in the trades and access to the technical schools at a very earlier age. We've got schools here in Oklahoma that are as early as I went out to a school out in the panhandle of Oklahoma a few weeks ago and saw fourth graders uh, laying cement. And they were literally mixing the cement. They were laying it. They were literally creating a sidewalk and, and, and bits and parts and putting it together. And you know what? Some of the kids were like, "This, I, hey, I, I'm excited. I can't wait to go into our tech center. I want to keep working on this. Um, and you know what? All the kids were engaged. Um, you had folks there were teaching the kids that weren't your traditionally um, uh, folks from a traditional college of ed. They came from different backgrounds. We literally had a welder in the room with the kids. Um, I, I think you're going to see models like this, that when we talk about parent choice, it's parent choice inside the school system yeah. for different tracks towards workforce. And I do think we are seeing a resurgence of what does it mean to produce good citizens? And what we've seen is the left has really hijacked, you know, kind of civics education into creating the social justice type of, of citizens. But I think you're really starting to see folks that say, look, we want our kids to understand uh, the history of our country. We want them to understand that so they can start putting us on a trajectory to get back to those fundamental core values. And so I, I think you're going to see the trades take off. I think you're going to continue to see tech schools advance into our K-12 schools. And then lastly, I think you're going to see this resurgence towards, look, we want to teach citizenship in schools. And it starts with a robust understanding of American history, American government, but also, frankly, Western civilization to understand the roots of our country. Okay, that's a great answer to, to a question. I don't even sure what I expected as an answer. Um, 
Okay, quiz time. Um, why? Boy. Why is enrollment to college to colleges dropping? Why? Because our higher ed system is failing our country, and I'll tell you why they're failing our country. They continue to grow cost through administration, through building the Taj Mahal of buildings. They continue to not connect the cost of a college course to the credential or certification you receive through that pathway. They continue to not be reflective of actual jobs and workforce shortage areas of states. And they continue to embrace a left-wing ideology which has them hiring the most further left academics in every state that are not uh, representative of the values of states so that they don't care. They don't care about kind of creating this workforce ready individual that goes into a STEM job or goes into a specific job with robust knowledge that they really believe their role is to quote, enlighten them into a liberal ideology. So you mix the out of, you know, just ridiculous spending habits because they are on the federal dime, they're on, on the state dime, they're on, you know, taxpayers' dimes at every level, these these robust endowments they have, so they can just keep building, building, building. Um, the the courses not, not lining up to actual workforce jobs. And then lastly, the um the, the left-wing ideology, I, I think they have been on a trajectory of failure for a long time now. And uh, uh, Americans have woken up to it. People aren't going to their jobs to work really hard to try to raise their kids right, to turn them over into some, you know, pro uh, Hamas left-wing nut job professor. Now they're more than happy to pay for a college degree or pathway if, hey, if that means my kid's got a better lot in life, that's great. But they have lost the trust of the American public. And I think you're seeing it in the enrollment. Yeah. Um... For those of you keeping score, that number's enrollment's down about eight percent in the last two years. That's a that's a that is a remarkable number, and you know the, um, the smart college folks are all trying to convince everybody it's demographics. It's not demographics. There's there's more there's more eighteen to twenty two year olds than there were ten years ago, and there are fewer students than there were ten years ago. Um, all right, let me ask you a question about this. I'll ask you you know three more quiz questions. Uh, there are about twenty five hundred four year colleges in this country. How many are there going to be 10 years from now? Oh, you said 2,500 now? That's about right, I think. Maybe a little bit high. It might be only be 2,300, but let's just use 2,500. 10 years from now? 10 years from now, yeah. I think it, I think it could be cut in half. Yeah. I mean, the business... I, I think Go ahead. Next four or five years, I think you're going to see a tremendous effort. Uh, you know, look, hey, I, I love when President Trump put out there of like, hey, what if we had, you know, this college that we were able to put out and actually you know, be online, be, you know, one third of the price, make some of these Ivy League schools pay for it. I think you're going to start seeing folks that come up with new models that say, uh, we can do this a lot cheaper. We can cut out a lot of this. You know, a lot of it is these licenses that they deal with, you know, where they they come in with these accreditation boards. And, and I don't know how much you would want to go into that, but they're just a nightmare that set in these all these false qualifiers for the different programs. I think you're eventually going to see some state. I'd love for us to be the first one to knock those things out and say, here's the deal. Here's what it takes to be, uh, you know, this job. Here's what it means to get an undergraduate degree. Here's what a master's degree is. Really boil it down. Get kids through a college experience in two years. Um, let a lot of it be online. Let kids move through the coursework. And, and let's get them out for 
you know, much cheaper cost. I think it's just going to blow the model up once you start seeing folks do that. Let me ask you a question about that. Um, I, I tend to agree. Um, I have a theory. You want it? Here's my theory, um, whether you want it or not. Uh, uh, I agree with everything you said. Um, part of my theory, though, is that what's gone on in the last five years, right, accelerated by the pandemic, but is that people have uh, all these kind of hybrid models of how they educate K through 12, right? You have homeschooling and you have homeschooling that's some cooperative schooling, too, and you have public schools and Catholic schools and you have classical um mostly evangelical schools, right? You see, so everybody's got these kind of different models. And as these kids age up, they're going to be used to dealing with different models. And you're going to wind up with that kind of thing going on at the post, um, at the post-secondary level, right? The, 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 what, what we call the college level now, right? Am I, am I crazy? No, I don't think you're crazy at all. I think that to your point, you're going to have folks that have been used to that type of teaching they're going to see that this model works, you know, and I, I get, you know, I deal with folks all the time that go, oh, you know, oh, I don't think a private school or a homeschool experience can be as good as, you know, this public school down the street. And I go, well, guys, I, you know, we've got data to back up that it is. We, we've got a ton of examples to show you that it can be. So I, I think that you've got those folks that are moving through our education system that are absolutely going to be open to those different models. And it is going to create a more cost-effective education system. And frankly, it's going to provide more options and we, we, you know, this is one of my biggest frustrations with education is the lack of innovation in a field that should always be innovating. And we're talking about how do you teach someone a skill? How do you help someone grow into a, a fully functional adult with the ability to live a fulfilling life, get a job, things like this? Hey, look, we should always be growing and innovating in that space. But you have these interest groups, you know, involved in higher ed or K-12 that, that a system works really well for them. Well, I think, like you said, you're going to see an area of disruption where these models will be explored. And frankly, you're going to see a lot of folks who really like these alternative models. Yeah. I mean, you just you have a bunch of consumers now who are entrepreneurial themselves. They're entrepreneurial consumers. Right. They understand, hey, it's a buffet. Right. I'm, I'm not I'm not it's not jail. It's a buffet. Um, I think that's just going to rifle, you know, riffle through the system. Eventually, these guys are all going to be college consumers and be like, OK, none of this makes sense for me. Right. I want to construct my own thing. Sorry. I, I can't remember if we talked about it last time, but have you ever heard of the maker spaces, this new phenomenon in K-12 education? I don't think so, no. Well, I love these. And so what they do is I, I found a lot of micro schools that use them, and now I've got some our public schools using them as well. But a maker space is basically you kind of give kids this lab, and their assignment for a prolonged amount of time is to create something. It, it can be a business that sells A, B, or C. It can be to invent something that looks like this. And basically they get in teams and they organize, uh, you know, and they basically meet with an advisor and they're working through the whole thing, right? They're, they're working through marketing, advertising. Um, how do you bring it to market? Um, um, all the data research that went in behind it. They study. And what ends up happening is guess what? You find kids that just get on fire for this stuff. And we have one locally, you know, the kids are receiving patents and things like this. And so, well, those kids are now, you know, you, yeah. you try to put them in a traditional model, you yeah. know, they get to college age and you, and they go, what are you talking about? I just, I created my own business yeah. when I was 15 and, 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 you know, brought it to market, you know, uh, no, it doesn't need to be this way. And I just think that pressure on, on higher ed, that pressure on what does it look like post K-12 is just going to be too much for the system to kind of keep fighting and keeping the status quo in place. Yeah. It's a pretty exciting time to be alive. Um, do me a favor, send me some of those kids to market this podcast. Okay. Cause we're not, 
we're not good at it at all, um, as, <laughs> as we discussed earlier. Um, all right, uh, easy hanging, low hanging fruit, um, tax endowments above a certain level, yes or no? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if they're not going, so when you're looking at these record endowments and you're looking at institutions that continue to take federal state funds and you're, you're not going to use them and you're going to continue to take this money, it's one or the other. I mean, it's just, and my biggest problem here in, in Oklahoma has been, and they continue to grow and, and, and rise and raise an increase of tuition on the kids. And I'm going, you know, I am to the point now, you know, I've always been a huge fan of being able to use school choice post K-12. Hey, you know, let kids have that in, in education savings account, let them use it. And hey, they could go get a certificate, they could go to college, but we've got to get these um, tuitions under control. And if they're going to sit on these record endowments and continue to take federal and state funds, I think we've got to get them to use those. Agreed. Um, okay, not education, but my last question. Um, artificial intelligence, good or bad? Oh, man. All right. So here's what I would say. So actually, I just did a uh, an interview on this the other day. And so here, here's my thing. I think that you can get a lot of good positive things out of AI. Yeah. I think that it can really help when you're talking about creating lessons, creating curriculum. Um, I think there's a lot of tremendous benefits that come from it. I, I've seen some work that's been done um, through some schools in that regard that I think has been really positive. Uh, I also have a program in state that's worked really well. And one of our biggest turnarounds is our largest school was also our lowest performing school that we're in the middle of a massive turnaround. Um, I had the superintendent fired. We've brought somebody else in. And one of the things that they've used is an AI tutor. And the AI tutor, though, and here, here's a key and how they did it that I think was very good. Um, they use the AI tutor to work alongside another tutor to help train them on what to identify, how to work. I think if you just leave the AI tutor and go, we have a tutor, it's this artificial intelligence tool. Uh, I think replacing in-person instruction or re replacing some human interaction there is where you're going to go into a, an area of you're not going to reap the benefits. Uh, but I think helping train individuals, helping kind of uh, shore up trainings, professional developments, things like that to give a more consistent across the board. Here's how we understand these things. I think there can be some real benefits to that. Yeah. I like to think of it like energy. You know, Oklahoma is an energy state. Um, no matter how much energy we dig out of the ground or take from the sky, the sun or the wind, you know, but mostly take out of the ground, um, people use it all. It's all accretive. It doesn't matter how much we, it doesn't matter how much we take. All of it gets used because it makes your life better. And I think that's where we're going to be with AI, right? All of it's going to get used and it's going to make your life better. But you're right. It's going to require, you know, it's going to make humans' lives better, but only if human, humans manage it, process it, you know, do do what they need to do with it. Sorry, that's editorial. But yeah, No, I mean, I'm hearing from a lot of teachers. I mean, we've been working on this. You know, they're frustrated with, I mean, you know, now AI can write a kid's research paper. You know, so, you know, they're, they're, they're transitioning to that. There are tools to catch it. Then there's tools to help you avoid being caught. So, I mean, you know, AI is just, it, it is uh, moving forward so fast. But what we've also seen is teachers have made adjustments. You know, it's, well, let's have the kids, you know, heaven forbid, they use their, their, their hands and write write down a and a prompt in a an amount of time in class sure. and then they can use AI tools for other things but let's actually sure. you know let's actually make a paper pencil in a short amount of time there's also something to be said for that right of, of can you write in real time can you come up with a prompt in 30 minutes write a good essay so i, I think that we're in this troubleshooting phase but I, I see it being a you know you, you can get a lot of benefits from it yeah me too but but i'm i'm relentlessly positive um all right 
Last thoughts. You have the floor for That's for the name of the podcast. Relentlessly positive. Relentlessly positive. There's limited risk of that. There's limited risk of that. Um, all right. Well, uh, your turn. Last thoughts for whatever you want to whatever you want to um, close on. Hey, look. You know, I I, I am optimistic about the future in education uh, because I've seen conservatives that have really woken up to, look, this is an issue that we can absolutely take hold of. We can cast a vision of. You can see improvement in academic outcomes. You can use free market principles. They work. Um, the data supports it. Let's go and be aggressive. Take on teachers unions. Take on a status quo that is stale, that has held kids back. I think America's ready for it. I think parents have been ready for it for a long time. And I think you're going to see kids thrive in this. It's something that's very American to, to empower the individual. So you, you take the same philosophy that's made this country great. You embed it in our schools and education policy. It will work. The public will support it. And I think we've got to continue being aggressive on the education front. So we will be doing that here in Oklahoma. And I'd love to see it across the country. Ryan, how can people get a hold of you? Um, the, so I have a, a website, RyanWaltersForOklahoma.com, where we keep everyone updated on what's going on here. And then I'm very active on Twitter. I got into it with Gavin Newsom the other day, but um, uh, Ryan Walters, Superintendent, S-U-P-T, um, at um, Twitter. I guess now it's X. But yeah, we stay pretty active on Twitter. So come come give me a follow there if you would. Appreciate it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Ryan Walters, the evangelist for the next generation of education. And it's going to be exciting and good and productive and make America better. So I very much appreciate your service and your work in Oklahoma. I do. And I look forward to you getting a chance to do it a little bit, a little bit bigger stage, a little bit broader stage someday. I appreciate you very much. Thank you for having me on. Thank you, sir. Hey, I want to thank Ryan for doing that. Um, that was, that was, he's a very different kind of character. Um, anyway, let us proceed. No, I, I appreciate that too. And, and thanks for taking up the slack for me. I like doing these jointly, but you're always there. You're, you're the, you're like the best wingman. I'm the best, buddy. I'm the best, you're the best wingman. I'm, I'm the second. You're like the co-pilot. You're the best co-pilot. I'm the second best co-host of this show. <laughs> All right. Um, so I wanted to bring these up because it's not just us anymore. And I don't know where, when the, like, the floodgates opened, but, you know, first we had some traditional hydrocarbon companies come out and, you know, speak some reality. We've had, you know, comments from, from Elon Musk about the importance of, of, of oil and gas, for example. This is from Siemens, the chairman of Siemens Energy. This is from the UK, the Telegraph. Energy bills must rise. To pay for net zero, says Siemens Energy boss. Joe Kayser says a lot of big miles, but little action pushing wind turbine makers into the red. The German boss of Britain's biggest wind turbine maker has warned energy bills will have to rise in order to pay for this transition. He attacked as fairy tale when thinking about net zero. If you want to have cheap energy, you need to be gas fired. That's the cheapest way, the most secure way, if you calculate the whole thing from the beginning to the end. Net zero may be realistic, but they come at a cost. Net zero targets, that is. The matter of renewables being volatile, if there's a windless night, it, can't, it could get complicated if you don't have storage. So you need to think, what is my green energy agenda? How much do I want to have on renewables? Uh, but... 
the crux of his his um his quotes are the bottom line is is his energy bills must go up in order to in order to fulfill this fantasy so yeah pretty candid from him right yeah i mean i th- i think everybody would agree everybody everybody who's thinking about it would agree i mean it, either that or tax bills are going to go up those are your, those are your two choices i mean you're you're All right, and and here's another one total yes in europe the longest serving chief executive of France's Total Energies, which they changed their name to recently, has warned that governments are mis-selling the energy transition if they fail to acknowledge the shift will lead to higher energy costs. We think that fundamentally this transition will mean a higher price for energy. Yeah. I mean the pace of transition will not be the same. We cannot ask African countries just to avoid to develop the resources because we have developed their resources for our own comfort for 20 years. Yeah. Um, McKinsey, I, you know, look, I don't know. This shouldn't come as a surprise to anybody. McKinsey put a price tag on this thing a couple of years back. They did a great big giant analysis of what it would cost to get to net zero by the end of the century, right, by 2100. The number they came up with was $275 trillion. So, you know, not not an enormous shocker. I wasn't shocked by the size of the number. It's about it's – it's the equivalent of about – um, three years GDP for the entire planet, which is seems like a lot, but maybe it's just me. I also, dug- I know, I know that there is a theory which says renewables are cheaper, so it'll be a lower price. He said, "This is uh, the CEO." Yeah, uh, we don't think so because a system where you have renewable intermittency is less efficient. <laughs> yeah. I don't know anybody who doesn't understand that. <laughs> Everybody understands that it's less efficient. You're going to pay it's free. Uh, we keep we keep being told that it's free. So you, you have to double you have to double deck the system essentially, you know. So it's going to cost more. And also, he he's basically says the 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 that uh, the world will need oil and gas for a very very long time. So look, I'm I've looked like you've said on a on a regular basis. Let's. Let's welcome them to the family. Yeah. The, the more voices, the better. Yeah. Even if they have led and contributed to the deceit for a number of years prior, at least they're coming around and speaking some truth bombs on occasion. So, I th- yeah, the more, the more, the more people who know something, who tell the truth, the easier it is for the next person to get up and tell, um, you know, the truth about what they understand about their the part of the system. Right? You know, you, you think about it. Gas guys, I mean, just in those two quotes, you heard a lot from gas guys, from guys who, you know, are running renewable systems, you know, they understand, right? It's like the McKinsey guys. For all I know, they're going to dust it off and, you know, come back with that, right? Because they didn't exactly advertise that $275 trillion study. I wouldn't either. Anyway. I got a shot in the chaser from California. You ready? Sure. LA Times, we banned single-use plastic bags. Now we're tossing more plastic. What gives? California wanted to reduce how many plastic bags we throw away. Uh, A glaring loophole has been undermining the process. In 2014, legislators passed a law banning single-use plastic bags. The hope was to notably reduce the amount of discarded plastic. But fast forward nearly a decade, Californians are tossing more pounds of plastic bags than ever before, when the, uh, the legislation was passed, according to a recent report by our friends at CalPerg, um, 
which took population changes into account and found the tonnage of discarded bags rose from 4.8 per 1,000 people to 5.89 per 1,000 people in 2022. One could argue maybe they reduced the increase uh, with the law, but nonetheless, the result is the same. More bags are being tossed as a result of the plastic bag ban. That's weird. Well, part of it is because the ones that they're making that are reusable yeah. are thicker yeah. and they're still throwing them away. They're still throwing so them away. It's yeah. like, so what, what do you think the liberal response is? To, you want to guess? To ratchet down on something. A trio of state lawmakers in California have introduced legislation to ban the use of plastic bags altogether in the state of California. Yeah, yeah, because because it's going so well. <laughs> you know what? They should just introduce... because if because it didn't work. They should introduce pesky consumers did not follow orders. They should introduce legislation to shoot people who throw out plastic bags and see how that goes. Uh, it's whatever. Come on. <laughs> All right, that's it. I, we have topics I'm going to leave on the table for next week. Our regime of fear and retribution hasn't worked. We need to do something else. <laughs> I, I'm going to leave. Uh, I'm going to leave. I had a couple more, but we're running long with, especially with the interview. Any best and finals from you, sir, this week, this this glorious week? I don't think so. I'm sure there's something I should be outraged about, but I can't think about it at the moment. What do you have? What did you throw out? What did you throw out? Anything interesting? I threw out Biden's on TikTok. Oh yeah, I wrote I wrote a column on that. I, that that's going to run tomorrow. I, it's disappointing. It's discouraging. It's the same column I've written four times. Like, hey, the problem is the Republicans too, and lobbyists and all this other stuff. It's not a surprise. Yeah, and uh, I think you might want to remind our our listeners, as you, you do on a, on occasion, that that the Congress is still not banned. TikTok. TikTok. It's the low-hanging fruit. It's the easiest damn thing to do. <laughs> and you know, everyone's like, oh, it's really complicated. I'm like, we <laughs> we literally sent a guy to the moon. I mean, it can't, it can't be that complicated. It, it, well, you know, it's this- his own government has banned TikTok on, on uh, government issued devices, and yet his campaign is yeah in full throttle on it. So and, and, and everybody, nobody's pinged him on it. Everyone's like, eh, whatever. You know, it doesn't doesn't really matter. I, I'm just um if you can't do this, you sure as hell can't do something complicated like, you know, do something about Chinese hacking or, you know, when they decide they want to eat eat Taiwan one day, you're not going to be able to protect them. I mean, if you if you think if you think getting rid of TikTok, banning TikTok is complicated, you know, try to imagine moving like a Navy fleet into the Formosa Straits in a matter of like <laughs> days when things are hairy. You know, that it, it <laughs> yeah, you know, it's only complicated because they wanted to um allow uh, a sufficient amount of time for TikTok to fill the coffers of both both political parties. Well, and that's the other thing, right? The last Especially year. Politico, the other thing is Politico um, reported that, you know. It's only complicated because, uh, you know, politicians figured that uh, if they let it slide for a while, that TikTok will, will, will generously fill their their campaign coffers and also k street would benefit immensely and i think both have happened this past year yeah i, guess, uh, I, I guess. could be wrong running the numbers so i guess i, I just you know it it I, I don't i don't know how anybody sleeps at night i really don't i mean you know at some point at some point at some point we're going to come into conflict with these guys 
And TikTok is a psychological operation, a psychological warfare operation. It's the most successful in history. And, you know, basically people are lobbyists are buying beach houses off it and nobody seems to care. So it bothers me. Well, I, for one, have, uh, I have still, my 14-year-old who reminds me regularly still does not have a phone, nor does my 12-year-old and my 16-year-old has a phone, but TikTok is not. Uh, allowed on her phone however there are workarounds sure i can't i can't stop them all but i'm doing my best here you know what there's workarounds to everything man like like as we just right. as we just read about in the plastic bag story um you know it it people are what they are they are what they are and and we we are all unburdened by what has been oh boy I know I'm unburdened by what has been or whatever. I'm undone by what has been unburdened. I don't, whatever, you know. <laughs> You're next president of the United States, ladies and gentlemen. But now, what people perhaps had never seen before can be seen to know what's possible. But the brilliance of this inaugural class and its leaders is the ability to see what can be. Unburdened by what has been. And then to make it real. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> it never ends. I had to play her twice this year. So I appreciate that. If we had a if we had a functioning entertainment industry, Julie or Strive Dreyfus would be getting paid to like do voiceovers of that stuff, right? She just would. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everybody would buy it because you'd just be like, could you read that speech? It's like your Reap character, everyone would be like, sure. All right, my friend, that wraps up the, the latest and greatest episode, number 169er of the Unregulated Podcast. What else can I say? Except, namaste. Namaste.